Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady and I am here with Dr. Chris Keel, who is the managing partner at Armada Corporate Intelligence. Lou Wise is captaining the ship that's behind Chris, so he's not available. He has no Wi-Fi or internet out there. So Chris, welcome to the show. Very good. I'm going to forever think of Lou as Captain Bly now. So. <laughs> so the first question is, um, there's no recession, right? I mean, that was a right. big boof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, it, it amazes me that people still listen to those of my ilk, um, given how <laughs> wrong we are. But it's reassuring to know that people still listen to Weathermen, um, um, despite the fact that they have the same track record we have. So at the beginning of the year, we were convinced that we were going to be in recession, uh, first quarter for sure. And then we got two point. 1% growth in the first quarter. Okay, well, then it's going to be second quarter, definitely second quarter. You know, we're going to go into recession. Well, then we got 2.3% growth. Um, so now we're predicting that third quarter and fourth quarter will be much better, which probably means that we'll hit recession. Um, so right. <laughs> it's like, given given our track record. But, you know, in, in fact, even in the dark days when we were thinking that things were going to go bad, they, there were factors that kept pointing away from recession, and they just accelerated. And the things that were pointing towards recession began to fade. So I think as we go into the second half of the year, we're still looking at some pretty positive developments, which is not to say <laughs> that there is a listener right now that is sitting there going, what are you talking about? I'm having a horrible year uh, and things are, are not working at all well for me. This country never really has a 100% boom or a 100% recession. We always end up with sector recessions and sector booms. Parts of the country do better than others. You know, we're just a huge economy. So we're at any given time, going in multiple directions and we'll be seeing some of that this year you know we've definitely seen growth in sectors like automotive we've seen growth in aerospace we've seen growth in a lot of the computer and electronics areas machinery on the other hand which many manufacturers can attest to has not done as well um and we know to a degree why this has been the case as well but Overall, I think we're we're looking at, at not even really a slowdown. We're just kind of in this mediocre growth period around 2%. Our 25-year average has been around 25 to 3%, so we're not far from that, but we're at the bottom end of it. Chris, is the two-year bond yield and the 10-year bond yield still inverted? Yep, still inverted. And this is something that is often a little bit misunderstood. People have tended to look at it like it's a predictor, and it really isn't. It's just concurrent, often with a bit of a downturn. And all it really is doing is reflecting the attitude of bond buyers. And bond buyers who buy 10-year bonds 
are predominantly buying on the expectation of growth. So if they see something that is inhibiting growth, which would be higher interest rates, they get less enthusiastic about 10-year bonds. Two-year bond buyers also pay attention to rates, but in the opposite way, because they're looking at the rates going up and they're saying, oh, well, that's good for yield for two-year bonds. And so the inversion really is just describing the 10-year growth bond people shifting to the two-year bond function because there's more profit to be made. So it's kind of a an indicator that the investment community thinks that we're heading for a slower period of growth. So we've been inverted almost for a year now uh, and haven't been actually in recession. So it's it's not not quite the silver bullet that it tends to be described as. I mean, it's kind of happening at the same time as you have a slowdown, but it's not really causing one. Chris, you put out uh, a report called ACES, or I love the other name, As Is, so people know how to spell it. (laughs) Uh, Talks about the manufacturing industry, and it has been very, very accurate. What's it presently showing for the balance of the year? Yeah, we're still seeing some pretty positive numbers, and and I'm glad you brought that up because the latest version of the ACES or the As Is shows a bit of a recovery that begins to manifest probably mid-2024. It's not bad now. I mean, if you look at the at the data, you are seeing that we are still above the 20-year trend line. We've come down a bit from where we were when we saw the boom in, in 2021 and 2022, but it's still above that, that trend line. It begins to fall beneath that trend line a little bit towards the end of this year, beginning of next, but then it starts to hook back up again. And an awful lot of what we've determined has been dragging it down is over inventory. Um, And we've talked about that off and on for a while, but the inventory to sales ratios are, are off right now. They're not in sync. And we know why. I mean, when we went through all the supply chain madness of the last few years, well, companies reacted predictably. It was like, you know, I, I got caught short with parts. I couldn't finish an assembly. I've got customers that are willing to buy, but I can't ship because I'm missing a part. If I get access to that, man, I'm going to buy as many as I can get my hands on. And so now we're looking at about 65% of businesses claiming to be overstocked. So this has completely messed up the inventory to sales ratio and the reorder cycle. And a lot of manufacturers that I've talked to are like, yep, that's exactly what's happening. Our customers that we would normally be supplying have said, well, we still have inventory from the last time we bought. So and still we get rid of that, we're not reordering. And so you've got a lot of suppliers who are like, yeah, would you hurry up and sell what it is you make so you can buy more of my stuff? And that will probably start to manifest maybe towards the middle to late third quarter. Um, We're kind of going in, it depends on what part of the sector that you're in. We're going into the holiday season and back to school and all that stuff, which is going to be good news for factory orders, not 
quite as good for the durable goods section. Um, so we'll be probably seeing uh, companies that are oriented towards retail seeing quite a bit more activity, but some of the others may sort of be waiting for next year. There's big sectors that are kind of in, in limbo. Construction is one of them. They're seeing a lot of movement in sort of the multifamily operations, single family homes are way down. Commercial is still doing pretty well, but their fear is that they don't see a lot in the pipeline right now. So they're doing a lot of work now, finishing up projects they started, but they don't see a lot of new ones coming. And if you're in the manufacturing sector that's feeding into construction, you're suddenly seeing the construction companies going, yeah, we're not giving up completely, but we don't really know what we're going to see next year. So we're we're delaying. Um, not to beat this to death, but there's a, a survey that I do for the fabricators and manufacturers, which is the FFJSER, Forming and Fabricating Job Shop Consumption Report, impossible to pronounce, the fifth is jizzer. But one of the things that was indicating was that many of the manufacturers were delaying their capital spending, but they hadn't abandoned it. They were putting it off by a quarter, maybe two quarters, but they weren't suspending it. So the the hope is that people kind of get back into more of a balance by the end of this year, beginning of next. Chris, the big one that we watched for quite a while uh, that was a real heavy ripple effect with the chips mm -hmm. in automotive manufacturing. And they mm -hmm. just, you know, they pulled back during the pandemic. Then personal computers went to the foundries and took up all the available space. Then automotive began to come back and go, uh, can we get back in line? Uh, <laughs> are they recovering yet from that transition? You're starting to. And and what you see is kind of a combination of, of the immediate crisis, which was the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. But it was also problems that have been building for a long time. And they're not even so much problems as they're just kind of the inevitable development of industry. You know, as recently as, as 20 years ago, we would purchase chips from probably 19 or 20 different countries. Um, there were probably two dozen companies that were producing the chips that were being used in industry. Over time, those industries consolidate. I mean, that's inevitable. You know, the best of the best get bigger and they either drive their competitors out of business or they acquire them. Today, Taiwan Semiconductor produces 60% of the chips manufactured globally and 90% of the new memory chips that are in demand. They're the best at what they do. They dominate the industry and they have, over the years, driven their competitors out of business and very efficient, very, very good company. But it makes you vulnerable to anything that affects their production. Taiwan Semiconductor was going to build a new facility in Taiwan, changed their mind, decided to build it in Arizona, so as not to be as subject to Chinese attack. 
(laughs) It's one thing to go after Taiwan. It's another thing to invade Phoenix. Um, So that that (laughs) probably is not on the agenda for even the Chinese. Samsung, which is another major supplier out of Korea, did a similar thing. They were going to expand into Korea. Now they're expanding into Texas. Their attitude is, if you're afraid to invade Arizona, trying to Texas um so <laughs> <laughs> that could be even less of a of a move so we're beginning to catch up on on that chip supply globally and then the other factor that the automotive sector has had to be aware of is that they had successfully talked their pricing down over a period of years they were very aggressive negotiators which is a great thing when there's an abundant supply. <laughs> when the supply is limited, those who have talked their prices down fall to the bottom of the list. And as you pointed out, the computers and the game makers, they were like, hey, we'll pay any price. And so it's like, gee, as a chip producer, I think I'll supply the company that's paying me the most. And funny how that works um but yes, it's, it's a uh, it's a great strategy to negotiate prices down when there's an abundance um uh, when there's a shortage yeah you have a problem i want to talk with you a bit about manufacturing regulation uh, there's a lot of noise in the news but i mean i'm trying to figure out what's the real impact i hear that there's a lot of regulation that's that's always coming it's always hitting manufacturers how onerous is it becoming well, it is fairly onerous because it isn't coordinated, and and that's one of the the problems that has always been endemic is that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing half the time. The right hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Um, you know, it's it's moving in all kinds of directions, and manufacturing finds itself under the auspices of everything from the EPA to OSHA to the financial sector to state regulators. I mean, there's a lot of, of intervention. And frequently, it's it's kind of trying to be an industrial policy without really coordinating it. And a lot of countries have industrial policies, but they're a lot more centralized so they're designed to make the manufacturer in that country more competitive and ours occasionally does that but more than that it's like right now we're seeing all kinds of restrictions about how we do business with china well we know why i mean we are developing a a pretty hostile relationship with china and we're actively trying to reduce some of our connections but you impose these regulatory requirements without really considering the alternatives. So suddenly a company is like, okay, I'm not supposed to do business with China now. You do know that nobody else makes that part. So where do you suggest I get it? And I understand that at some point they will reshore, but that's a year off. So when am I just supposed to wait for a year and and hope that somebody in the United States starts making this thing. Well, in the meantime, what am I supposed to use? And there's all kinds of, of you know, the, the road to, to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, we understand why we're trying to reduce our exposure to China, but doing it 
really quickly without considering the impact uh, can be can be costly. And then you start adding in all the other issues that revolve around you know, workplace safety. I mean, obviously we want concern for the workers, but the latest thing is protection from heat. And well, that's a very good idea. How is that going to be accomplished? And it hasn't affected manufacturing quite as much, for example, as construction, where people are working outside. And so it's it's transitional, but it adds a cost. The biggest problem, honestly, is that 75% of manufacturers in the United States have 25 or fewer employees. They're small businesses. And when you add in new regulatory requirements, there isn't the capacity sometimes to deal with that because they're just they're just not big enough. Um, it's one right. thing to ask Ford to make a change. It's another thing to ask one of Ford's 10,000 suppliers. No doubt. Uh, rare earths and, mm -hmm. you know, all of these uh, uh, metals or materials that are apparently in short supply in the United States. Are we wising up to the fact that we better dig someplace and find them. <laughs> yeah, that's another one of those the contradictory issues because right now we get a lot of those rare earths from China. And part of the reason for that is that China has no problem with strip mining Xinjiang province to get a hold of these rare earths. And we have rare earths. We have as much of a deposit as China has we are not at the point of wanting to strip mine Montana to the status of a giant lake. Um, you know, and it's kind of, yeah, we can get this stuff, but the environmental impact is huge. And you immediately start to have disagreements where people are like, yeah, boy, I'd sure love to have rare earths unless you happen to live in the part of the country where those rare earths are found. And then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I don't want to live in a gigantic mine. Um, it's like, well, you know, neither do the people in Xinjiang province. However, arguing in China is a lot harder than arguing here. Um, so it's, and we have to explore, well, the most recent, for example, is uh, two of the materials that are key for batteries are germanium and gallium. And those are byproducts of aluminum and zinc production. So the aluminum and zinc producers can produce it, but it's a fairly expensive process. And both the United States and Europe now are pushing their own aluminum and zinc producers to produce germanium and gallium. And those companies have come back and said, this isn't cheap. Are you planning to help us with this? <laughs> because right now we've been getting that germanium and gallium from China. We're capable of producing it, but it's either going to make it really expensive for the U.S. or it's going to have to be subsidized. And given the fact that we're trying to get people into electric cars, which means battery technology, the option of making the battery twice as expensive as it is now doesn't appeal. So it's one of those things like, hey, we need to produce this and we need to throw subsidies. And, oh, gosh, don't we have a national debt already? <laughs> so. I'm uh, hoping that, as I have seen often in the past, new technology 
comes into play like graphene mm -hmm. and surprises everybody and suddenly a battery is more efficient cheaper and better than it was with gallium geranium or any of the rest of the stuff oh exactly i mean that's always the the ambition and the hope and and quite frankly nothing drives innovation more than having something be expensive you know so if if the cost of something goes up then the incentive is that much greater to come up with an alternative or put the r d into it to develop an alternative i mean all eyes now are on toyota's announcement about its battery technology and and that it's worlds ahead of of current technology that really is still to be seen um but but we'll see i mean it's you have all of these different ambitions that that tend to run into one another and one of the challenges going forward is that if we do want to develop more electric vehicles and you know move away from fossil fuels well there's lots of different parts in, in involved you know it's the age-old problem of chicken and egg when it comes to transportation you know which do you have first the charging stations that would enable people to have electric cars or do you have to wait for people to have electric cars before somebody decides to build a charging station you know right now you know i i live in kansas and owning a tesla is not easy in kansas city um and not as easy as it would be in southern california you know i go out to places where the electric vehicle is more ubiquitous and there's not a problem here you got to kind of plan your day around when you're going to charge and isn't the in-home charging station fairly pricey it is pricey and there's another good example of 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 goals that contradict each other california was wanting to pass a provision that every new home have a charging station installed so that they can support electric cars at the same time they want affordable homes hmm. and the builders are coming back and saying okay we can put in the charging station but we're going to have to take out the bathroom um so we're <laughs> you know we're kind of which does the average homeowner want and if you're talking about an affordable home yeah chances are they're not driving a tesla um and and they're like you know if it's a choice of bathroom or charging station can i have a potty please um and let the rich guy go figure out what to do with his tesla elsewhere yeah clearly well as we wrap up this segment chris and i appreciate you being with us uh, that great sailing ship behind you needs winds. What are the headwinds that manufacturing is facing from now to the end of the year? You know, probably the biggest concern right now is not domestic. Um, we're seeing a lot of, of growth within the U.S., and I think there's a certain level of confidence that this will be a pretty nice end of the year in most sectors. The biggest worry is that a lot of the rest of the world is either right on the edge of recession or maybe fully in it. The Europeans are beginning to pull out of it somewhat, but they're still, you know, we're talking about 2.3, 2.4% growth. The Europeans got ecstatic over 0.03. It's like, we're not dead yet. Um, <laughs> to bring a Monty Python reference in, um, China has not recovered as quickly as as was anticipated. 
And the U.S. market is still 20% dependent on exports. And a lot of those exports are manufactured goods. The U.S. is still a major manufacturing nation, but particularly of high-level expensive manufacturing. And this is the stuff that is purchased by countries and companies, predominantly Europe and Asia. And if their economies aren't doing well, they're not buying as much of our output. So the biggest headwind for the coming year, I think, is not domestic. It's those foreign markets that we sell into. Uh, okay. And I just want to touch on one more point because I know you're, one of your areas of expertise is Russia. Yes. How is Russia doing with their war and will they run out before they can win? <laughs> well, you know, it's becoming more and more obvious that this is a stalemate that is neither side is going to, quote, win. Russia has tried a number of things to put additional pressure on Western nations and it hasn't worked. They've tried to use fuel, oil and gas. Europe found alternatives. They are trying to use food as blocking exports coming out of the Black Sea, et cetera. And lo and behold, the world found alternatives to that as well. The Russian economy is in a shambles. Um, frustration levels are very, very high. There's, there's no scenario that has Russia accomplishing what it set out to accomplish last year. But there's also not much of a scenario that shows Ukraine driving the Russians out unless Russia just decides to give it up and declare victory and leave. Obviously, there's precedence for that. We've done it ourselves. Um, we gave up on Afghanistan, said we won and left. Um, and at this point, the Russians may be saying, okay, all we really wanted to do was take this little village here in the north, you know, and we've got it. You know, there's all 100 of those people are now Russians. So we won, we're leaving. Um, and it's like, if so, hopefully, <laughs> not quite that pathetic, but close. Yes, so. yes. Uh, well, Chris, I appreciate you being with us. And we always enjoy uh, a little levity with the seriousness of economics and what's happening in the world. So I appreciate you being here again. You're so welcome. And I look forward to our next iteration. And maybe we won't have to talk about the return of recession. That would be depressing. So. Yeah, exactly. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please like and subscribe, share on social media, or leave a review. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Rumble, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us online at mfgtalkradio.com for our other episodes. We have also included links to our advertisers below. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>